Jeffrey, can I ask you before we get started officially? Sure. How many calls have you had from the impending administration asking you to to join their um, join their ranks? I am not at liberty to talk about that. How about oh. you, my friend? I've got zero so far. Okay. But uh, you know, still early. Welcome back to uh, another episode of Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Capelo. I'm an assistant professor of government at William and Mary, and I'm joined, as always, by my esteemed colleague. Marcus Holmes. Welcome, Marcus. Well, thank you, Jeff. Uh, I don't know if the next time we talk, I'll be Secretary of State of not or not, but right now I'm I'm an Associate Professor of Government here at William and Mary. You know, the 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 one of the best things about the Trump administration is that at any time any of us could have gotten the call to be Attorney General. There was just it always was kind of out there that so much possibility that you could just be plucked from obscurity and be named uh, head of a major cabinet agency. And I feel like that's one of the things I'm going to miss about the Trump administration. Right. In retrospect, I think uh, it does sort of appear to be the case that we all had a shot uh, at one point or another. (laughs) These rags for riches stories, you know, so like the current acting secretary of defense, as of a couple hours ago when we're recording this, um, what like started the year like like five levels down in the defense department. Yeah, well, you can make your way up very quickly and, in, the, you know, in the Trump it's, administration. It's it's quite the it's quite the adventure for some of these folks. So I think um, we'll be we'll be seeing even more of that in the next couple of months. Probably, I suspect so. Yeah. Well, that, that might be an interesting way to start, uh, Jeff. How do you sort of see the next couple of months uh, playing out? I don't know. Well, what do you think, Marcus? I think he's the Trump administration is going to do a, a couple different things. I mean, one we, we could sort of talk about in the in the basket of legal lawsuits and and legal maneuvering, which um, I'm not a lawyer. I don't I don't pretend to be one. But everybody that I've I've heard sort of talk about this as an adult explains that there's not really much to to do unless they uncover something that just is completely uh, you know unknown to us at this point. So we can we sort of put that uh, aside. But they, I think they will try to do a lot of legal maneuverings. I think Trump also uh, will continue to sort of campaign, which is it's an odd uh, thing to say, but it, it seems like he wants to hold rallies and wants to sort of continue campaigning, despite the fact that the election already happened. Um, so I think publicly and rhetorically, he will act as if uh, he's still president and will continue to be president uh, into the, to the future. And then I think the other thing he's, he's going to do is what we saw started uh, today or yesterday, I guess, is the sort of scorched earth um, policy of just firing anybody that sort of uh, stood in his way previously. So I think, you know, getting rid of Esper today was about sort of the, the lack of action on his part or perceived lack of action during the summer with the protests. And there's some other things I think that, that Trump didn't like about Esper. But I think he's going to do that with a lot of people. Um, and so I, I would expect a lot of turnover um, in, in not just the administration, but the sort of, you know, agencies that, that Trump cares about. So I think it's going to be chaotic. I think it's going to be messy. I think in the end, um, you know, Trump will, will leave office, uh, I, I suspect, actually reasonably gracefully, because I think he will um, see that the, all the legal stuff didn't really go anywhere and he doesn't have much choice. Uh, but until that point, I, I, I expect it to be kind of chaotic uh, and a little bit messy. Yeah, I think what's happened is that he really was, because of the election coming up, reluctant to make some personnel changes that would kind of generate these, more of these stories. And so we've kind of saved up a few people who yeah. are um, likely to be replaced in pretty rapid succession. So it's, it's kind of, that's kind of an interesting time for these, for these agencies. Yeah, uh, it'll be an interesting few months. Before, I, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit today about what the Biden win means for international policy. But before we get to that, um, judging from my emails, I think we need to do like a very quick election prediction postmortem because I gotten some emails about people, you know, demanding um, some accountability for these polls. Demanding? We, we, wow. we, were, we were promised this, you know, 17-point victory in Wisconsin. That did, <laughs> that did not pan out. <laughs> well, I do remember you saying, Jeffrey, that you can't trust just a single poll, right? So we... I, I think, I, I mean, if I didn't say that, it was I was thinking it. So I, I just thought maybe we can offer a couple of election hot takes to uh, tide everyone over to season two of, of Cheap Talk. Okay. So uh, let me just say a few things about the election. I'm interested in what you think, Marcus, about um, how our prediction fared. Because I know you like took a stand and uh, built a map and, you know, placed all of your considerable reputation as a political scientist on the accuracy of that map. And so I'm interested to, I did. to hear what you what you say about that. 
So I just have a few things. So for me, what's really interesting about the kind of post-election environment is the extent to which the way the election goes down on election night really kind of colors our perception of what happened in a, in a very interesting way. Like just the fact that Florida uh, is able to count their votes quickly, whereas some of these other states need to take a long time to do it because they're not allowed to begin counting the mail-in ballots until after election day and all of these other kind of things that are unrelated to the actual who voted piece of the story. Um, I think that really kind of leaves people with a different sense of what happened than it would if everyone just kind of counted right away and we got the numbers right away. And this is similar to 2018, I think, where Democrats, I think at first in 2018, felt like it had not been a good evening. But later, it became clear that this was actually like a like a pretty big wave election for Democrats in 2018. And in this election, I think similarly, because of the way the votes were counted, because of which states count first, if you went to sleep uh, election night fairly early, you may have come away with the impression that things were not going particularly well for Biden. But I think we're going to end up with a pretty dramatic popular vote victory and not inconsiderable electoral college victory that is relatively in keeping with some of the predictions that were out there. So I think that's that's kind of the first thing to say. Uh, on the polls themselves, I think it's clear that the polls were were off. We still have a polling problem um, when it comes to really understanding what's going on with the electorate, but maybe not as wrong as they originally kind of appeared to be. And in, in the end, the popular vote miss, the, the national vote miss, won't be that great, maybe a few points. And uh, there are some states that were, were pretty bad. Um, so Wisconsin, I'm looking at you. Florida also not looking great. Texas not looking great. Um, but those Texas and Florida in particular are kind of notoriously difficult states to poll. So we, we clearly have some polling issues. But on the whole, I don't know if it was that bad, as bad as it kind of initially seemed in terms of the, the polling miss. There's going to be a lot of um, looking amongst pollsters at what might have gone wrong here. And I think it really comes down to a couple issues. One of non-response. I think I mentioned this in the previous po podcast that particular kinds of voters may be less likely to respond to polls. And because so few people respond to polls, a very small difference in differential in which kinds of voters are more likely to respond to polls can have a really dramatic difference on the results. Um, and so this is something that pollsters have been grappling with for a long time, but it's very clear that this problem has not been solved. And then the other kind of interesting issue that's associated with this election, maybe more than others, is the issue of turnout. When you look at what happened in this election, it looks like both Democrats and the Republicans hit their number in the sense that they brought out enough people to the polls voting for them that had the other party kind of stayed with the status quo, they would have won. So both sides had really good turnout. And the turnout models, I think, in these polls did not account for that. And, and this might have been complicated by the fact that for a lot of this election, the last kind of few weeks of this election, people were voting. And so pollsters had different ways of dealing with votes that had already occurred. And some pollsters asked people, have you early voted? And if they said yes, they counted that as a, a vote, um, whereas someone else they might have who might have said, well, I intend to vote, they downweighted because that wasn't a sure thing vote. And because the early vote was heavily Democratic in some areas, this may have kind of shifted the way pollsters were weighting their their samples in a way that had a real impact on the polls. Um, so I think there's a couple of potential issues to investigate there. It's clear the polls were off, um, but maybe not as much as we originally thought. And then finally, I think the forecasting models did their job here. Um, and I, people are uh, angry at Nate Silver, as they always are. Uh, but really, what these forecasting models told us was that the, the differential for Biden is great enough that he can survive a fairly significant polling miss and still win this election. And it appears that that is what happened, that Biden um, ran enough ahead in those polls that even if the polls were pretty wrong, which they sometimes were, Biden ends up with enough votes to win this thing. And it, it looks like that's kind of borne out. And you can imagine a world where there are no forecasting models and there are just polls. And in a world like that, we might not have understood that kind of central dynamic of the race um, in the same way that we did because we had 538.com and the economist model and these other things. So I think in, in the end, this is a little bit of a good news story for the forecasting models because it's clear what their value added was um, in, in this election. So that's my uh, quick election take. Marcus, what do you think? <laughs> well, as, as usual, Jeffrey, that was very eloquent and, uh, and smart analysis. I, I agree actually with a lot of what you said. Let me just uh, echo a couple of points. First of all, I found this to be a very odd uh, election. And I think it was odd because we had so many mail-in uh, ballots. 
And what that meant was on election night, when we're sitting there watching CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or wherever you're watching, it was, it was difficult to get a sense of what was happening because it wasn't obvious what votes were being counted, right? And so this is where the, the sort of race metaphor uh, has always bothered me and, and was really bothering me uh, during this election, which is, you know, it's, it's not a race in the sense that there are, uh, you know, sort of two horses that, you know, one's leading and one that the other takes the lead or anything like that. Oh, yeah. Every time they say Trump is coming from behind, Biden's coming right. from behind. No, it makes no sense. that's not it what's happening no at all. Those votes what, arrived earlier than that. Than right, those votes. exactly. So so one of the things that's really disappointing about that is that it totally misses the point, which is that you all you have to do in an election, simply enough, is count the votes. And it doesn't matter if you count this group first or this group first. You have to count all of them or at least enough of them to know, you know, what's what's going on and so you can project the state. And so what we saw, for example, you know, it, it early on in Ohio, where they started with mail-in ballots, you know, that were favoring uh, Biden, it looked like, oh, my God, you know, Biden might win Ohio. And then that quickly changed once they started talking about the, the in-person votes. And we saw it play out state by state uh, very, very differently. So it was an odd election like that, because normally, obviously, we don't have as many mail-in uh, ballots. So we don't have this problem of sort of like counting this group first. You do have the issue of what counties report first. And so that's always an issue. But I felt like the networks were a little bit like they're more prepared to deal with that particular issue than they were with the issue of, of what ballots were being counted uh, first and, and second. So my take on the election, uh, I think it really is one of these cases where we do have to break it down, not just at the, the sort of presidential level, but also what happened in the Senate and the House races. Because I think if you if you think about it just at the presidential uh, sort of side of things, I think what you said makes a lot of sense. Right. So Biden was predicted to win. Biden won. It looks like at the end of the day, this is going to be fairly comfortable uh, in the polls. While in some states are you know worse than others, in the aggregate, you know it, what happened is is pretty much what was predicted to, to happen. You know, you might quibble a little bit and say that Nate Silver and, and Elliot Morris kind of led us to believe the election would be you know sort of a uh, a little bit easier for Biden uh, on, on election night, and that didn't play out. But at the end of the day, Biden did win. I think actually where the the, the more problem uh, polls came in were at the the Senate level, where you know, there were races like, you know, in Maine, for example, where we thought that Susan Collins was in big, big trouble. And she actually ended up winning pretty, pretty easily. Yeah, there wasn't a single public poll that showed Collins ahead in the in the main Senate race. Sarah Gideon was leading in every poll. And what did what did Collins actually win by six or seven points? I can't remember, but it was right. It was it, <laughs> something significant. It, yeah. was, it was very significant. Right. We saw it also, you know, with the, the Jamie Harrison and Lindsey Graham, that that race was supposed to be very, very tight. Uh, and there were some holes leading into it that had uh, 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 Graham losing. And of course, he also won you know, fairly comfortably. So I think that, that when we think about the polls, we have to remember that these, these models for the presidential uh, outcome, are, that's, that's one thing. That's a set of, of polls that we put into a model, and then it makes predictions. The Senate races, though, are, are a different ballgame. And those, you know, if you have a bad polling you know, day <laughs> or a couple of bad days in a state like a Maine then you just don't have a great sense of what's going on. So I think in a future conversation, we should talk about uh, maybe why, like the main polls, for example, got the Senate race uh, so wrong and what the difference is between polling for, for Senate races and polling for, for the president. The other thing I'll say, too, is I think a lot of uh, liberals were disappointed uh, election night and then also subsequently because the, the sort of blue wave did not uh, materialize. So I think a lot of people thought, myself included, uh, and this is where I got the election wrong, that it, it was going to be a blowout. And you know, uh, Biden would not just win the presidency, but crucially that the Democrats would pick up the Senate as well. I didn't expect to lose seats in the House either. And so I think, you know, people like myself thought that what was going to happen was this blue wave was really going to take over. And that, that didn't happen. Now, one of the interesting things that people have been talking about in the last few days was that there was this, I forget what they referred to it, the red mist or something like that, that was always sort of like around. And that, that, that idea was sort of percolating that maybe what was going to happen was people wanted to see Trump out of the office, but they didn't necessarily want the full on liberal uh, agenda, the progressive agenda of, of the sort of far left wing of the, the party. I'm not I'm a little skeptical that, that that's what happened here. I actually think that what is more likely the case is that when you have high turnout, like you were just saying, for the presidential election, you know, that that helps down ballot candidates. So if you're a Democrat in the House running in a, in a relatively conservative county, let's say, or a conservative state even, you know, the fact that so many Republicans showed up to vote hurts you, you know? And so I think that I think turnout really uh, more than anything explains why the Democrats didn't get, you know, more sort of of action in the in the House, especially, but also potentially the Senate as well. So I guess in the end, you know, I was I was surprised that uh, it wasn't more of a blowout, but I I'm not I'm certainly not surprised that Biden is the president elect. 
uh, I didn't think that Trump was was going to win. I am surprised that the Democrats. So you are recognizing Biden as the winner. You just called him the president elect, and I. I am I am congratulating Biden as president elect of the United States currently. Just so we're all clear. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I fully expect him to be inaugurated in January. Uh, but I do, like we were saying before, I do think there's going to be a sort of rocky road uh, to get there. Anyway, so that's that's my sort of election hot take. All right. Well, that's that's great. So let's um, we'll come back to this subject uh, maybe two years mm-hmm. uh, or the. Uh... Well, actually, no. We should do it during the break, and we can talk about these two runoff elections in Georgia. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, there's always a, there's always room for us to to dabble in American politics. There's always something to be talking about. So let's talk a little bit about the Biden presidency, uh, assuming we get there, and what that means about international policy. I think what's really interesting here is that unlike any administration that I can remember, um, and I'm super old, we know what to expect from the Biden team in a way that I, I don't think I've seen in, in a long time, uh, because we haven't had kind of this continuation of an administration, a prior administration, since George H.W. Bush, I guess, right? So there have been kind of, you know, we had two Clinton terms and two W terms and then uh, two Obama terms. Um, so we actually know a lot about who's going to be involved. We, we, we know these people. They've, they've served in, in the administration before. We know all these names that are being bandied about. And, and so I think to some extent, we, you can almost think of the Biden administration in foreign policy as a continuation of the Obama administration in foreign policy, and we wouldn't be too far off the mark there. So I thought we could do, Marcus, would be just kind of take turns talking about, you know, an issue that we think is going to be something that changes under the under the Biden, under the Biden, under the Biden foreign policy. And um, maybe we can just go, kind of go back and forth and hit the highlights. OK, that sounds good to me. I, I agree with your overall uh, sentiment that I, I think that uh, as somebody who doesn't like to talk about predictions all that much, I do kind of think that the Biden uh, administration, at least initially, like the first six months, let's say, uh, is going to be pretty uh, predictable. So we could I mean. I can rattle off a couple of, of things right off the bat that I think are likely. Well, likely give me your give me your first one. What's going to be like the the number one priority of the of the Biden administration? Well, the, I think the number one priority actually uh, is going to have very little to do with uh, international relations, ostensibly, which is the coronavirus. So I think, but that I think is, but that's right. But I think that that is a sure. Co- I think the coronavirus is the number one foreign policy issue by far right, right now. I mean, so Biden, so unlike Obama, so Obama entered uh, with a. a of crisis, which was the financial crisis. So he had to, on day one, put together, or before that, but on day one, hit the ground running with a team to figure out uh, how do we get ourselves like, uh, you know, out of this, this major recession this, that's, that's hit us. Um, and similarly, Biden's going to be in a very similar position where, uh, all, I mean, unless something changes dramatically over the next two months, this country is going to be uh, in really bad shape uh, with COVID, right? And so I would expect that that domestically, you know, we'll see all kinds of different um, uh, potentially executive orders and, and calling up governors and mayors and, and trying to get the Senate to, to do some type of legislation uh, uh, for coronavirus. So that I think that will definitely happen very early on. And the international part of that, I think, is, is going to be much more engagement with international institutions. So he's already said he's going to you know, join, rejoin the World Health Organization on day one. Um, I would expect a lot more collaboration. Uh, with allies on this on this issue. So one of the things that we talked about in a previous podcast was you know, the striking sort of sense in which once COVID hit, the institutions and the alliances that we had seemed to not matter at all, right? That every every country sort of retreated to their uh, uh, national borders, in some cases like closing borders, uh, and basically said, no, we're going to figure this out on our own. I think the lesson for not just the United States, but a lot of countries, particularly in Europe, has been that th- that's probably not uh, the way forward here, right? As as they see a second spike as well, or in some cases a third spike, I think that Biden's going to suggest to to European leaders that we need a, some type of collaborative approach. And so I think that'll be an institutional one. I think that there will be uh, a cooperation through the World Health Organization, through other arms of the UN. But at, at the very least, I think we're looking at a change in in, in rhetoric and a change in approach where uh, Biden is not going to say we're going alone uh, for the rest of the way on this. I think he's going to seek cooperation uh, from allies. Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I, I, that is for sure the number one thing on everyone's agenda. And, uh, you know, certainly the domestic aspect of domestic policymaking aspect of that will be important. But there is a, a significant international policy aspect of it, too. And I think we will see more collective anti-coronavirus efforts, collective efforts to get the virus under control. 
both if through institutions and through kind of multilateral just engagement on dealing with the vaccine production and managing PPE supplies all over the world and all these things that where there were clear opportunities to do something if we all could have like gotten together and done it. Um, I think the Biden election gives an opening for some of that stuff. This isn't all about Trump. That maybe, maybe even under a different presidency, there still might have been this rush to within our borders kind of thing. But the new president provides uh, an excuse, an opening, a reason for countries to once again try to work together to combat this. And so I think we're going to see a lot of that. I think that uh, this, the first shot at coronavirus wasn't tremendously successful anywhere, uh, with the, the possible exception of New Zealand. And so I think we're going to we're going to see uh, folks ready to take another shot at it in a different way. So part of that, as you mentioned, is institutions. Um, so there's definitely that piece of the covid puzzle. But I don't think that this is just about global health. I think we can expect the Biden administration to embrace institutions and um, kind of multilateral agreements in a way that the Trump administration did not. Um, and so I think the kind of the next piece of that is also the Paris Agreement to deal with climate change. I know that climate change will be a major foreign policy push for the, the Biden team. And so rejoining the Paris Agreement is the kind of thing that uh, can just be done, right? It's, it's uh, not the kind of thing that is going to require any kind of legislative effort. And so that's, that's good. Um, from the perspective of the Biden administration, that's something they, they can actually accomplish. There are other agreements that are trickier to rejoin and re-enter. We can maybe talk about that. I mean, do, do you agree that institution building is is in our future, Marcus, in this administration? Oh, I, I completely agree. I think the World Health Organization, you're right, um, is is the first one that'll happen. I think while we, you and I are, are sort of more security focused, I do think that the World Trade Organization is going to be an area where Biden seeks to re, um, yeah. you know, re sort of invigorate our relations there, uh, probably trying to eliminate some of the tariffs that uh, that Trump has has imposed, you know, it's it's striking with the, the WTO in particular. I mean, you know, Trump uh, has been very anti World Trade Organization from the beginning, you know, and that's uh, that's an institution that um, it's it's an odd one because you know conservatives often like free trade, and so like the World Trade Organization ostensibly exists to make free trade easier to do. There's all kinds of you know arguments about why that might be sort of biased towards China and this kind of thing, but I think at the end of the day we'll see Biden um, really engage uh, with the World Trade Organization. We should say too, I mean, I I think there are some areas where um, institutions are going to. It's not that they're necessarily that, that Biden's going to come in and, and change things uh, right off the bat. So, for example, you know when Trump was talking about um, NATO and the idea that. Uh, NATO allies do not pay their fair share, right? I think you and I would agree he, the way he was talking about that is completely wrong, right? In the sense that you don't, you don't pay dues into NATO. What he meant was sort of levels of defense spending. This was an area actually that Obama uh, was, was pushing on allies as well. So uh, while Trump and Obama rhetorically have very different ways of expressing their, their opinion that uh, European countries should pay more, um, they, they actually agreed on that issue. And so I would expect you know, Biden to come in uh, and actually maintain continuity in it, right? I think he's going to do it in a very different way. He's going to approach, you know, Burkle and Macron and, and the rest of the leaders there uh, with a little bit of a friendlier attitude, we could put it that way. But I do think that he will, he will try to make it so that uh, NATO commitments are upheld and the things that European leaders have, have pledged, they, they follow through on. So I think that is actually one kind of interesting area where uh, there's more agreement, you know, administration to administration than, than might sort of meet the eye. So there's there's wide agreement on burden sharing within NATO, but I think that the Trump administration's approach to alliances as this kind of transactional thing will not be carried through into the Biden administration. So I, I think yeah. you're right that that lots of presidents have pushed um, NATO allies to contribute more to their own defense, but uh, the U.S. at working with like South Korea to deal with their alliance there did tons of damage to the alliance by making all these additional requests that South Korea pick up more of the, the bill for uh, for U.S. troops being stationed in South Korea. Just all this stuff that is not that much money, frankly. And all it does is point out to the allies that, hey, maybe this isn't that sustainable in the long term. And we should be worried about the commitment that the United States really has to this alliance. So I think that the Trump administration's view of alliances in this transactional way went beyond just NATO burden sharing, um, because th this, this issue of they need to put more money in this is something that was literally the argument that the, the United States was making with South Korea. 
mm-hmm. and it's it's just really damaging to to that kind of a the so this relationship that's supposed to be based on more than this transactional back and forth. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. One one question I've been meaning to ask you, Jeff, is is somebody who knows a lot about the Iran nuclear deal. Where, what do you think the future is uh, there with the Biden administration? Yeah, so I think that that was, that was kind of the next thing on my list here. I, I think the Biden administration will endeavor to reinvigorate the Iran nuclear deal, but it is not clear to me how successful they will be in doing that. You know, the 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 Europeans, God bless them, have kind of kept a candle burning. Kept the ship a ship afloat. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> well, they're like they 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 tried to keep this this arrangement going. Despite yeah. Iran, you know, pursuing the strategy of of slowly violating each piece of the Iran nuclear deal because the U.S. withdrew, right, and isn't keeping up its end of the bargain, and so, but the Europeans have kind of kept the shell of this agreement in place w- with the kind of hope that someday the U.S. would decide to get back into the fold, and so the, that moment has arrived. And I think under the Biden administration, I I know a lot of the Biden folks who worked on the Iran deal that they, they are very in support of this agreement. And um, if there's a way to get back into it, I think they will try to do it. The problem is they've moved well past the point that the deal kind of anticipated. And so it's going to require redoing it in a way to get everyone back into compliance. So I'm not um, I'm optimistic, but I don't think it's the it's as easy as rejoining the Paris Agreement where you sign some papers here. We're going to need to do a little bit of negotiating to get everyone back to the point where the deal can be sustained going forward. But I think there is the opportunity to do that, which is new, right? We, we haven't had that opportunity in a little while. Yeah, and that's my take, too. I mean, I think we will see uh, the Biden administration try to, to rejoin the deal. And I think you're right. I think it's going to be an, another uh, effort in diplomacy. You know, I don't know if John Kerry is up for going back over and <laughs> renegotiating this well, whole thing. He's not doing anything. He's sitting around, you yeah, know, holding you know, webinar, webinars on things. Maybe, maybe he'd be up for it. But um, I mean, I, I think theoretically, anyway, it should be easier the second time around. You know, they already have a, a little bit of a framework uh, to work with. Well, uh, in the meantime, though, uh, the United States assassinated their, um, you know, the head of their military, <laughs> their, their military well, right. force. There's that. Exactly. You know, and, it's not as if nothing has happened over the last uh, four years. That's true. And and Trump's efforts to have Israel normalize relations with other states. I mean, that that also has changed a little bit. Right. Yeah. So there it's a little bit more complicated. Well, it's a lot more complicated. And so I, I, I think it, I think you're right. It can be done. Um, but I do think it's going to require some diplomatic effort. I would not expect this to be one of the sort of you flip a switch on January 22nd and it and it happens. So I think it's going to be one of these longer, longer things. The The, the one area in the campaign and in the debates that I thought got very little attention and, and shamefully so, I think, is the, the sort of wars in the in the Middle East. Right. So we still have uh, essentially a war going on in Afghanistan, for example. What, what do you think Biden's going to do there, if anything? Do you, do you expect continuation of the sort of Trump policies, um, which have been, you remember, he, he came into office four years ago saying he was going to end these, these wars in the Middle East, has really not done that. If anything, I mean, some of the strike we were just talking about, um, there's, we've seen more engagement, really, not necessarily in troop levels, but, but uh, engagement in the region. Do you see the Biden administration um, you know, working hard to end these wars, or is this going to be a continuation of of kind of what we've the status quo? Yeah, I think that there will be changes, particularly in Yemen, uh, where you know the U.S. is kind of supported off and on, um, sometimes more, sometimes less. Uh, Saudi Arabia's efforts in Yemen that conflict um, has seen some opportunities for intervention to kind of limit the the, the conflict there. I think the United States under Biden is likely to take a slightly harder line against Saudi Arabia continuing the uh, prosecution of that war. And um, this will be part of kind of a broader change, I think, in uh, U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia. I think that is one area where we can expect um, a little bit of a tougher line toward uh, our traditional ally. So I think there are prospects for a little pressure on Saudi Arabia to yield uh, maybe a potential settlement in, in Yemen. In Afghanistan, I actually think there are probably will not be significant changes. The Trump administration has been on course to kind of reach this sort of peace agreement with the uh, with the Taliban. And, you know, nobody is nobody's happy about about this peace agreement, not the Taliban, not the Afghan government, not the U.S. But it is something that I think is kind of on the road to everyone 
being able to say we did this, the U.S. can remove remaining troops and then, uh, you know, all hell can proceed to break loose in Afghanistan, which I think is the likely outcome there. But I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, do, do you what do you think is going to happen with these with these conflicts? I mean, I, I, if put on the spot, I think I would say I, I don't expect much to change, really. I mean, I think, you know, uh, Afghanistan, I think you're right, we'll probably just we'll see similar trajectory to what we're seeing. Maybe we get this Taliban deal. Maybe we, we don't. Iraq, it's hard to really see much changing there in the short term anyway. I don't I don't really, you know, know that we're going to be completely out of Iraq in, in six months. Syria, uh, you know, again, it's these, these are complicated, <laughs> complicated situations. And, and, you know, it's it's not it's not like the the president incoming, you know, has a lot of um, uh, what's the right word, you know, sort of they, they might have ideas about how to change things. But this is a ship that that often, you know, is you steer. Uh, very slowly, right? It's like there's a lot of momentum uh, going on in, in in the Middle East, and it seems to me that it's very difficult to make you know really big you know uh, I guess tack right the right the, to the other direction quickly. Um, these are things that take time, and so to the extent that we do see a, a sort of subtle approach that's different, I think that might be the case. But I, I want to expect our listeners to really notice significant changes in the first six months of the the Biden presidency. Now, one area that I do think we might see some difference. Um, by the way, if we were planning this out, we could have just created a map of the world and kind of go region by region and, and how this is going to change. But I think relationships, uh, or the, the relationship with Russia is going to be a little bit different. So one of the things that, that my students uh, and I have talked about a little bit is is the sort of arms control situation with Russia. You know, they have these treaties that they, they need to renegotiate and, and that kind of thing. I, I would expect the Biden administration um, to try to uh, make movement there on the on the arms treaties while at the same time putting pressure um on putin one of the things that that's happened because of the trump's the, the, all the weirdness with russia is that there's been this uh sort of difficult to understand relationship between the united states and russia at the moment right in the sense that a lot of people believe uh to this day that russia helped trump win the 2016 election a lot of people to this day believe that trump is you know putin's puppet uh useful idiot like all those types of things that you hear a lot about particularly from the left at the same time, I think there, there's objective evidence to suggest that in a lot of ways, the Trump administration has actually been pretty tough on Russia. Um, and, I, and I would expect, actually, that to, to continue. I don't think Biden is going to be uh, too eager to, to sort of ease the pressure off of, of Putin. Uh, but I do think one area where he will try to get some agreement is on this, these arm controls, uh, arms control deals, partially because I think it's, it's relatively low-hanging fruit. I mean, I, I don't think that the, uh, these deals that were crafted, you know, first during the Soviet Union, like in the 1980s, and then extended a bunch of times. Like, these are not things that I think Russia and the United States fundamentally disagree a whole lot about. Um, you know, these are, these are details that need to get worked out. But I, I think it would be relatively straightforward for Biden to simultaneously get an arms control deal with Russia, while also keeping some of the pressure uh, on, on Russia for their various shenanigans, you know, with disinformation and, and some of the things we've talked about in prior podcasts. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the, the negotiation of an extension to the new the New Star Treaty is uh, likely to be a little bit smoother in the Biden administration if the Trump administration can't get it done. You know, so there have been uh, there's been a lot of talk about some kind of interim agreement um, happening soon, but you know the the, the holdup in those negotiations has been the Trump administration's insistence that China uh, be involved in those negotiations. That is not a thing that uh, the Biden team thinks is important at this point with the level of nuclear weapons we're talking about. We're still well, well above the threshold where China um, would need to get involved to make more reductions. So I, I don't think that will be the holdup. So I think if there is the willingness on the side of the on the Russian side to sign an extension to New START, which is, you know, an Obama era uh, arms control agreement, um, then I think the Biden team would go for it. I worry that we might see a kind of broader disintegration of U.S.-Russia relations that will take that deal along with it. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that's true, but I could imagine a much tougher line coming from the Biden team um, with regard to, like, Belarus and, um, you know, other areas where, and Ukraine, other areas where Russia is kind of throwing his weight around and the Biden team sees a chance to take a tougher line than the Trump administration has taken. So I, I, I'm not exactly sure what, what will what will come out of that, um, but I think there, there are kind of crosswinds, uh, things pointing in different directions. Um, but this is related to kind of, I think, what has been the main foreign policy focus in the campaign, which is U.S. relations with China. 
How do you see the Biden administration approaching U.S.-China relations going forward? You know, uh, everybody that I uh, talk to, uh, or everybody that I should say I have spoken with in the last few days uh, since Biden was became president-elect, or it looked like Biden was going to be president-elect uh, last week, I, I've asked in Washington, I've asked this question too. Uh, and nearly everybody says the same thing, which is that they expect the relationship to continue to be somewhat tense, right? And, you know, there's there's a number of different reasons for that. I mean, the first the sort of big uh, reason for that, I think, is that most people look at these things not so much in terms of personalities, but rather sort of structural forces, right? Like, you know, China is just a, a big, it's a big country. It has a lot of military, it has a big economy, it has a sphere of influence, it has a regional uh, influence. Its priorities and its interests are not always aligned with the United States. And, you know, so if you look at this in structural terms, it doesn't really matter if, if Trump or Biden is president. You look at it and say, uh, of course, there's going to be competition. This is what great powers uh, do. And regardless of whether you think that, you know, they, they're doing it for motivations about being number one or being hegemon or whatever, it doesn't really matter. What matters is they, they both uh, have ambitions. They both want to have good economies and they both want to uh, make sure that they're, they're secure. And they take steps to, to ensure that. Uh, oftentimes that are not uh, always in, in concert with what the other the other wants. And so I would expect uh, this is going to be a, a little bit of a dicey situation. You know, one of the things that happens when you have administrations change over, uh, particularly from a, a Republican White House to a Democratic White House, is immediately what happens, or vice versa, a Democrat to a Republican, is what happens with Taiwan. Uh, and I think one of the things that, uh, you know, I think people rightly worry about is what is the the sort of relationship going to look like with the United States and Taiwan? To what extent are we going to continue the arms sales and and things like that that the Trump administration uh, really pushed? Um, and what are, are what are the Taiwanese thinking about about Biden? I think that's a that's an interesting question. I think the question about what uh, the Biden administration talks about with respect to Hong Kong is another big question, right? So we we saw the Trump administration, you know, rhetorically anyway. Uh, was was pretty forceful about about the protests, and so I think that, that the Biden administration will also uh, be very concerned what's going on in Hong Kong. We then have you know the the concentration concentration camps essentially that the Biden administration clearly uh, will will not uh, at least rhetorically put up with and and put pressure on uh, China to to fix. And so there's there's a lot uh, that is that will be occurring in this relationship that don't have easy uh, sort of fixes. I think one area that I would, would point to uh, if we want to be a little bit more positive on, on why that relationship might be a little bit better, we're not going to see, I don't think, the same rhetoric. So I don't think Biden is likely to you know, talk about uh, China releasing the, the plague on the world. I don't think he's going to use this type of you know, rhetoric with, with respect to the virus. And I also think that he's much more likely to pursue diplomacy with China than, um, uh, or meaningful diplomacy with China uh, than, than Trump was. Biden has been in a, a sort of, you know, official office of various types uh, for four decades. He has a history of really believing in the power of personal relationships. He has a, a history of getting things done, of making relations uh, uh, better, whether it's you know, dealing with Republicans in the Senate, uh, Republicans in the House sometimes, or other statesmen. And so I actually think that the one area that we, we could point to where there might be some meaningful change is more diplomatic initiatives with, with China. It seems to me with the Trump administration, it's, it hasn't been diplomatic at all. It's just been simply, you know, sort of rhetorically aggressive, uh, acknowledging that China has different interests than we do and, and saying, you know, that's, that's, we, we can't, you know, really deal with them in any meaningful way. I think Biden will reach out to Xi and, and try to see if there's any common ground, um, even if at a modest level, if he can get some agreement. Um, you know, going, then maybe from there, that's, that's sort of something to, to, to build upon. So I think most people are kind of skeptical that much is going to change with China. I'm a little bit more optimistic than the, the folks I've been talking to, but I, I see their point, certainly. I'm optimistic that something will change on the trade side, where I think that the Biden administration will be less keen to engage in trade wars because they're, they're maybe not easy to win. I don't know. <laughs> so I, I think the Biden administration will probably not be as interested in those trade wars with China and 
be, because of that, that may, that may make it easier to have some kind of diplomatic inroads. Although I will, ex I do expect that the Biden administration will take a fairly tough line on some of China's actions, including human rights, which is something that the Trump administration hasn't always been been great at. You know, there there are there are some cases where they've they've said some things about, for example, Hong Kong, but um, in other cases, not so much. So I think that that's likely to be more of an area of emphasis for for the Biden administration, as it kind of traditionally is in, in Democratic administrations versus versus Republican administrations. Um, related to the human rights question, I think, is uh, immigration policy, which we, we think of sometimes as a domestic policy issue, but that has real implications for how foreign policy is run. Um, and so uh, I would expect to see fewer barriers placed in terms of immigration, you know, Muslim bans, this sort of thing. Um, that, that, sort, that sort of policy option really doesn't play well abroad. Um, and part of this is, you know, wanting to be not quite as hated by other countries um, in the world. You know, we, I'm not going for liked. I'm, I'm just going for not hated as, as vehemently. Um, and so I think that there are some benefits to not being public enemy number one in every country out there. Um, and I'm thinking that some of these changes, um, like singling out particular religions for different treatment, um, are you know not great for our image, and um, maybe it would be good to to make those make those adjustments. Can I just say on that uh, topic, which I, I I totally agree. I was struck uh, on Saturday uh, by two different things. One was the sort of almost um, immediate sense that the perception of the U.S. had had changed. Right. So what we saw on Saturday night in London and Paris, uh, you know. <laughs> People celebrating Biden's win, you know, and 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 I don't think that that's. I understand that there was some of that in um, uh, when Obama won as well, but I I, I do get the sense that that the world uh, was kind of looking to the the United States and uh, not certainly not everybody in the world, and certainly not every country, uh, but a lot of countries hoping that Biden would win and that the the sort of Trump era was an aberration. Um, and it dovetails, I, I've done a little work in, in European diplomacy with a lot of sort of diplomats have, have told me over the last three years that they've been sort of waiting Trump out and just hoping that this is just a, a blip on the radar and, and somebody else comes in and sort of restores normal. I, I don't know if that's going to happen, but it, but it struck me that almost immediately there was a sense of, of relief around the world uh, that this was, this was going to be over, at least for now. Uh, and tr we could talk about in a future podcast about Trumpism living on. Uh, Trump running in 2024, all those things are on the table. But at least for the moment, there was this sort of perception change that, that was, that was uh, immediate. I think the other thing that you said, which is also important, is on immigration, um, the, the, the travel bans and, and the things like that, I think, are going to be readily uh, fixed. And I think he will do that very, very quickly. But the broader question about immigration reform is one that in this country is just very difficult to deal with. And will, it will continue to be a difficult situation to deal with with a Republican Congress um, because it's just hard to get agreements on, on immigration reform. So I think one of the things that, that Biden will struggle with is, as Trump did, how to get your immigration policies uh, done when you don't have Congress to be able to do this legislatively, right? So you have to, you have to use executive orders. Uh, and that's going to prevent you from doing, I think, a lot of things that he might want to do. This is going to be actually where I think Biden's ability to reach across the aisle, if, if anybody could do it, it might be him. You know, can he get enough uh, Republican senators or, frankly, even some Democrats to, to get on board with immigration reform? What does that look like? Uh, this country, um, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I would say this country badly needs immigration reform. It's something that we've, I think, needed for quite a while. Um, and, you know, if we think about internationally, restoring our, our relationship with Mexico, for example, would be part of that uh, package as well. But it's just something that's going to have to be done at some point. And we'll see if Biden, you know, is, is up to the task and, and sort of working politically, the political angles in order to get it done. So one of the points you just brought up uh, a minute ago, I think, is one that we've been kind of talking about for the last four years. Um, and as maybe a, a way to to kind of sum up this conversation. So a lot of people who are unhappy with Trump's foreign policy um, and who saw particularly uh, the Trump administration's treatment of alliance ties and multilateral institutions as a pretty clear break with the past, those folks have been wondering to what extent are these changes permanent and to what extent is this something that, okay, once Trump is out of office, the international liberal order 
liberal in the sense of the international version of liberal, not the U.S. domestic policy version of liberal. To what extent does this liberal international order survive the Trump administration, which has kind of taken every opportunity to weaken these institutions and kind of remove the United States from its position of leadership in, in the world? So, you know, we've been debating this. If the Trump administration ran eight years versus four years, um, does that appreciably improve the prospects that we move kind of back into the status quo before the Trump administration? Or will countries always have in the back of their mind, well, look, the, at the flip of a coin, 50% of this country is ready to break these alliances, to remove the United States from these institutions. And so how can we bank on it? Shouldn't we have a good plan B going forward? And and I think it's a real question. To to what extent does Biden inherit a the U.S. position in the world that um, is kind of irreparably changed, um, maybe maybe even in good ways in some places, right? It's not necessarily all bad, um, but it is bad for those who kind of have this vision of, of U.S. leadership and in multilateral institutions that kind of carried on since the end of the Cold War through the Obama administration. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. If I had the answer, uh, I would write it down and publish a book. Um, I don't. I think I think I have a couple different uh Thoughts, though. I mean, the first is uh, countries should uh, have backup plans, and should you know, so the, to the question of like, should the United States uh, have a leader that comes along that redu- you know, sort of tries to tear down everything that an Obama did or a Biden did in the future? Um, should states sort of hedge their bets? I think they should. You know, as I think the United States should with other countries. Um, so I, I, I do think the states will continue to do that, and maybe the the Trump administration was a wake up call that they haven't been hedging enough. I, I think the other. I, I actually see us sort of at a moment um, of of truth uh, for for a couple different reasons. If we think about what Trumpism uh, has been, right? What we what it basically is to to me anyway is a sort of very popular um, populist kind of movement that is not just in the United States. It's somewhat global. We saw it with Brexit. Um, we've seen it in, in other uh, countries in Eastern Europe, and, and so there's there's a sort of trend. Um, in a lot of places in response to lots of different things, I think, including globalization, and um, certainly the pandemic hasn't helped. But those populist movements, um, Brexit is looking like it's it's a little bit of a disaster. It's not obvious even what, what Brexit has really meant yet for, uh, for the UK. It's not obvious that people are all that happy with the outcome of Brexit. Um, Trump lost. He got a lot of people that voted for him, but he did lose. Um, and so I think we're kind of at an inflection point where we're, we're going to, in the next six months, next year, we're going to sort of see whether this, this sort of populist moment that we've been living in for the last, you know, better part of a decade, I guess you might, might call it, is going to continue, uh, or whether it's over. And maybe the, the, the sort of system has sorted itself out and people have realized, I might not be happy with, with my life. I might think that I deserve more. I might not like the, the trade rules. I might not like the fact that my job has gone away due to, to, to you know, computers and programming and all that. Learn to code, Marcus. Got to learn to code. Yeah, right. Exactly. Everybody's going to be a coder. Everybody's gonna be, your life's going to be great. <laughs> People might be realizing that the, the answer is not to vote for these sort of right-wing policies, right? That those, those aren't the answer. Now, maybe the left-wing doesn't have the answers either. And then, you know, then we're sort of in this you know, state of flux back and forth and people are just unhappy, which could happen. But I, I do kind of get the sense that we're going to learn a lot about populism uh and and the liberal order uh in the next six months i think we talked on a previous podcast about how there's a lot of scholars that think that this these are broad structural forces that have nothing to do with trump nothing to do with with brexit uh in particular that have been going on at least since the 1990s basically since the end of the cold war uh these things have been building up and sort of leading to these inevitable uh types of things i don't know if that's right or wrong uh but i am i am sort of uh observing that populism's having a tough, tough go of it recently. Um, and I don't think it's the death knell necessarily for populism, but but if you're a populist right now, you haven't had a great, you know, few months or or the last year or so. So anyway, that's that's what I would say about that. Can we just talk about one last thing where I think there is some hope and optimism? Sure. Trump's approach to North Korea uh was lampooned by many, was denigrated by a number of different scholars and analysts alike. Uh, the idea of love letters and so on, uh, I think a lot of people looked at as, as, as just being silly and, and foolish, and this is all about Trump's ego. Nevertheless, Biden enters, I think, with a real opportunity to do something with Korea. Now, North Korea. I'm not talking about uh, creating this, this cohesive, comprehensive, 
denuclearization of the nuclear peninsula. But I do think there's an opportunity for Biden to, to um, step in and build on some of what Trump was able to do. Uh, and maybe like a freeze for a freeze. So, you know, in my class, we've talked about this in the past, where basically the idea would be, you know, North Korea is not going to give up nuclear weapons, at least now, but they can stop building new ones. <laughs> and we can, in, in turn, uh, give something back, like reducing sanctions, for example. Um, so there are things that could be done. Again, we're not talking about sort of, you know, fundamental changes in this relationship and, and sort of, you know, uh, North Korea not being a nuclear power anymore. But we, we can make incremental progress. And I think ironically, you know, if Biden uh, wants to do that, and maybe he doesn't, maybe he doesn't think that, that uh, Kim Jong-un is worth negotiating with. I mean, certainly this would be something that would really twist the knife in, in Trump's back a little bit where he sort of started this process, but, but Biden is the one that gets the agreement. Um, but I do think there's, there's some hope in that relationship. I think that, that uh, Trump, if anything, has kind of opened the door for more diplomacy. Uh, it might not go anywhere, but you know, I, I do note that we are in a position where, at least rhetorically, the relationship with the United States and North Korea is better than you know, it has been uh, in the past. Now, Trump is to blame for a lot of that bad uh, rhetoric to begin with. So there, there's you know, it's a little bit of a, of a silly argument. But, it, but nevertheless, I do kind of think that we're in a position where if Biden wants to, he, he might pursue diplomacy to, uh, with the DPRK in a, in a, productive, in a productive way. So that's my, that's my optimistic uh, uh, take. I don't even I don't even know what to say to that. The the the, the <laughs> So here's what happened. There were there was so North Korea under Obama not a crisis. North Korea under Trump major crisis that we now are slightly less of a major crisis, right? Yeah. So so what is the what is we are what are we building on here, Marcus? Like what what is the why why does this provide some opening for Biden that what what is the Trump legacy when it comes to North Korea, except angry tweets and warnings of you know missile attacks on Hawaii that turned out to be a false alarm? I mean, what what is the North Korea has proceeded in its in its nuclear development has right. a significantly greater capability today than it did at the beginning of the Trump administration. Our relations with South Korea are significantly worse. Than they were at the beginning of the of the, of the Trump administration, right. and so yeah, okay. I mean, I guess there's a there's a sense in which Biden can come in and not do worse than that. But I I don't I don't know where, where remind me the hopeful part of that story. <laughs> so uh, you're not you're not wrong completely. I mean, you're wrong a little bit in the sense that the, the, uh, during the Obama administration there was a crisis with North Korea. It's just that it wasn't the the sort of like crisis playing out on Twitter. I mean, North Korea was was building and continued to build ICBMs and, and stuff like that. Trump comes to office, and you're right. Obama tells him in that that infamous White House meeting, you know that that North Korea is going to be your biggest uh, foreign policy challenge. And Trump maybe he manufactures it on purpose, maybe he doesn't. He sort of creates this new crisis rhetorically on Twitter uh, that then he seeks to resolve, and. I think he, he was actually, to the extent that there was any progress at all with, with uh, the DPRK, it was at least in sort of... But there was no progress at all with the... But there was no progress at all with the DPRK. This is the, this is the part, like, all the progress was in, in minimizing the crisis that Trump had created, but there was no progress in terms of, like, anything we actually care about in foreign policy. That's right. But, that, but that's Trump's... That's the, the, the premise of your question is, is, I think, leading us in a direction. Well, the, the, this, is, this is why Trump was ultimately a failure. He, if, he goes into to the, the North Koreans and says, look, I want to talk, I want to do a deal, right? And he gave up the sort of uh, uh, you know, leverage that we previously had uh, in, in, in giving Kim the, the meeting, right? But at that moment, he's in the room with the other guy and has the, the potential to make a deal. Trump couldn't make a deal, but at least he was in the room and, and sitting at the table with him. And the idea of a deal was, was on the table. I think that does provide an opening for Biden because the ice has already been broken. They've already met before. The United States and, and North Korea are now not engaging diplomatically, but they have in the past. And so I, I think this is an opportunity for Biden to come in and say, I'm going to do what Trump tried to do, but couldn't. And I'm going to go create a, create a deal with, with Kim. I think that would, be, that would be marvelous. And I think he can only do that, though, in a weird way because of Trump's failure. Because Trump created a crisis that he, he tried to resolve. But by doing so, he broke the diplomatic ice. And now Biden can come in, be the hero, get the, the minimal agreement, 
freeze for a freeze. And he will be looked at as, as the person who did what, what the great deal maker Trump uh, couldn't do. I think it's great that, that your your uh, your emphasis on the Biden policy is on like face to face diplomacy. It's shocking <laughs> who would have that thought that Jeff, who would have thought that I would take that approach? Right. It's shocking that you would push in that direction. I mean, my you know, my policy advice on this issue, which um, <laughs> judging from the uh, fact that nobody's responding to my emails to the Biden team about this is probably not that popular, is that the, the U.S. needs to uh, finally make the shift and change our posture toward North Korea completely. That this idea of denuclearization is a non-starter. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's time and it's dangerous. It, pursuing that policy is dangerous because it prevents us from pivoting into the deterrence relationship that everyone knows we're ultimately going to have to have in trying to um, contain and deter a nuclear power in North Korea. And we went through that process with every other country that got nuclear weapons, right? This is the same thing we were dealing with with China in the 60s. There's a period of un- instability and uncertainty as we kind of grapple with, well, can we roll back their weapons? Should we try to attempt to do that by force? That's a scary thing um, and potentially really dangerous. And we would all be on safer footing if we could pivot into a world where the U.S. is treating North Korea as a nuclear power, not as a reward, but as a fact of life and trying to deter nuclear, trying to deter North Korea's bad behavior wherever it is. And I I think that would be a safer posture to set forth on. And maybe there's some chance once we make that shift to try to limit North Korean progress in the future in developing a further nuclear capacity and maybe making the world a little bit safer in the region, kind of beyond the nuclear issue. Yes, 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 yes. That 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 to me is perfectly reasonable, and I think that it that would be the value of this meeting uh, is to limit future development uh, and give the, the North Koreans something in return and start building a, a relationship. You know, it's like we we can go over there and start building a little bit of of, of trust with one another, show them that we mean it. You know, we're serious when we say that we'll give you. Uh, sanctions relief. You show us you you mean it by you know not developing more more weapons. That's how these things get started. So Tony you know, Blinken, look, Susan Rice, not returning my emails. I don't know. You know, hey, I don't know what's going on with that? Uh, that doesn't doesn't surprise me. But I'm ready you know, to take I, their I, call I anytime. I think it's good to 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 you know end on a positive, right? And so you know there's there's progress to be made with the North Koreans. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a wide wide ranging <laughs> conversation discussion. Well, um, thank you, Marcus. Thanks so much for for joining me today. It's been a pleasure, as always. And thanks, everyone, for joining us in this inaugural season of Cheap Talk. Did you really have someone come back out about the oven? Yeah, I had somebody come back out about the oven. So it turns out, and, and if, this, if this bores you, listener, you can turn this off, but it, it turns out that ovens uh, are not quite as consistent oven to oven as one might think. So the, the repairman explained to me that when GE makes ovens, okay, off the, the, the factory line, they produce ovens for a variety of reasons, whether it's, you know, well, actually, I don't know what any of these reasons are, but for a variety of reasons, evidently, when you, when you say 350 on your oven, brand new oven, two, two identical ovens off the assembly line, one might actually heat to 340, one might heat to 365. They even say 30-degree swings are completely normal. So you put something in at 350, 380 is what they consider to be normal. 320 is what they consider to be normal. Now, as a baker, the difference between 320 and 350 is actually fairly important, right? It's not as important if you're doing like a roast or something like that, like a, or a brisket or something. But if you're cooking like a, a, a batch of cookies, 30 degrees can be, can be a meaningful difference. So what I did is I had the repairman come out. He explained to me how this this happens and he count so where can i just interrupt you were you getting where did you like put a thermometer in there and get different readings yes i got a thermometer i got a thermometer on amazon.com and i was i was i was noted noticing that continually consistently our oven was between 30 and sometimes 50 degrees uh lower than what it was set at so why not just change it so like when you want 3850 you set it to 380 it's funny you should say that jeff because that's actually, in a sense, what this guy did. What he did was he, he changed it not so I have to do it, but he calibrated it. So he, he has this fancy thermometer that he sticks in the thing, and he, he, he sets it up at like 500 degrees, and he lets it run for a while. And he sees what the, you know, the delta is between whatever it was programmed at and what the actual temperature is, and then he, he thusly calibrates it with his fancy uh, uh, computer. So now uh, we, have, <laughs> we have an oven... He didn't, he didn't calibrate it perfectly. So we have an oven that if I put it at 350, 
it runs up to like 370 or 365. So it's not perfect. He also alleges that the, the $5 thermometer I bought at Amazon.com is not actually all that accurate. You know, I, I don't, who, who knows, right? How am I supposed to, how am I supposed to validate how accurate? I mean, I only have one thermometer. It had so many good reviews. What, how uh, Yeah. I mean, I, you know, everybody, <laughs> I guess people that buy this thermometer <laughs> for $5 are not actually testing how accurate it is. Uh, so, so Jeff, did, well, how did you know that you needed to buy a thermometer in the first place? Were you getting like batches of cookies that were badly burned? Cause like, I, 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 right. I cooked in, I, I, I cut open a piece of chicken and it was raw. Ah, yeah. Disgusting. That's not good. That's not what somebody. anyone wants. Food yeah. poisoning is awful. So the bottom line is I had the intuition that something was wrong. I tested my, this is a good lesson for students. I had an intuition <laughs> that something was wrong. I tested my intuition. It turns out that my intuition was right. And I, I fixed the problem, at least for now. I mean, I didn't completely fix it because it's still a little off, but it, it's within the margin of error. Well, you fixed the problem by calling a repair person. The repair person actually fixed the problem. Let's just be clear. Yeah. You know, like, it's like Nate Silver, right? It's within the margin of error here. So like, it, you know, it's still, it cooks. The oven cooks. Did it, does it get it perfectly right? No, but it, it cooks the food better than it, it does before. So at this point, are you regretting getting the cheapest possible oven? Is, yes. is that... <laughs> another lesson to students don't get the cheapest possible oven <laughs> there's certain things you want to spend money on i think ovens i think um you know vegetable peelers like you don't want a light vegetable peeler you want like a, a heavy vegetable peeler those are the two things that come to mind yeah so what i'm wondering is was it a mistake to spend all this money on plywood to board up my place in advance <laughs> of the election yeah, I think it was. But, well, so Although, here's, I guess we're not out of the woods yet. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Like, like you know, the uh, the <laughs> riots or whatever could happen in, you know, my neighborhood of Williamsburg at any time. And the real question is, how long can I get away with having the house boarded up before the Homeowners Association, like, makes some phone calls and I get a I get a nasty well, letter about it? in your it. case, you do have a pretty active HOA. Oh, my God. Uh, it's like, if I let yeah, the grass grow for a day, it's uh, yeah. I get reported. Now, see, in our neighborhood... Uh, we could use a little bit, like we could use a, a very minimal HOA because we have a lot of student houses where they don't mow the lawn or anything like that. So it'd be nice to have, you know. Those are my people. I I completely approve of that. Yeah, no, I would like I would like things to be. It's just it's just gonna grow back. Why are you even cutting it? You know, it's all it's all about the aesthetic, Jeff. Yeah, it's all about the aesthetic. 